You're listening to Ouija Broads, and this is a very special episode that we chose to do on date night, because this is Liz. And this is Matt. Hi. That's my husband. (laughs) I live here. I asked him one time if he ever wanted to do an episode, if Devin got busy or we couldn't do it for some reason. And he said yes, and then he had a topic that was very exciting, (laughs) and he got so excited that he went ahead and prepped it anyway, so I thought we should tape it. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about it tonight. So yeah, like most stories in the Northwest, this is going to start in 1894 in Kyoto, Japan. Okay. That's, baby, that's too West. That's, oh, did I do it wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I think if you, it's it's a globe. We're we're not just going to make stops in Japan. There's also a little side trip to New York and like warehouses in New Jersey and stuff. But we're really talking about a native of Redmond, Washington. Okay. But, okay. Is it a surprise what it is? It kind of is, but I'll go ahead and tell you his name. Okay. It's a me, Mario. (laughs) He's Italian. I know this. (laughs) No, it's that Mario. So, yeah. Nintendo. The company of Nintendo was founded in 1894 in Kyoto, Japan. Yes. What? It was called Nintendo Kopai, and I'm a white boy who does not speak Japanese, so I'm just doing my best. Japanese is pretty fanatic. Yeah. And uh, what they did was they sold playing cards. Oh, okay. Yeah. They were selling uh, what are called Hanafuda playing cards to gamblers in Japan. This was a really good racket. You know why? No. Gamblers never use the same pack of playing cards twice they are paranoid that other people are going to cheat okay you can mark the cards yeah so even at casinos now that's how you can get those cheap uh, decks of cards with the corners notch that shows that they've been opened before and they're not going to reuse those again and so they sell them real cheap after that it was uh founded by a man by the name of yamauchi fusajiro yamauchi is the surname okay Uh, i'm gonna I'm going to do my best to maintain the traditional Japanese surname first mm-hmm. way, of, way of doing things. But because the book that I was using is a little bit unclear on that sometimes, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to maintain that promise throughout. So forgive okay. me, everybody. Do your best. Yeah, I will do my best. I should go ahead and give some credit to some sources up front, I think. A lot of this is coming out of Jeff Ryan's book, Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. It's a really good, fun read. He obviously had a good time uh, writing it. I'm also going to be referencing a 2007 documentary, The King of Kong, which is about the World Donkey Kong Championships. So yeah, Hanafuda playing cards to gamblers. Nintendo Kopai, Yamauchi Fusajiro. It was a successful company. It was not super wealthy, but they had a national network that they distributed cards throughout Japan, and they were successful. They were good. Um, And if you fast forward to 1949, then... Nothing much happened to Japan between... No, exactly. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, That was when the founder had a stroke. Oh, okay. And that is when his grandson... Fusajiro Yamauchi took over. He was 22 years old. 
His dad probably would have been in line, but he had abandoned his family for another woman and had walked out um, and was in dishonor at best. And he'd also walked away from probable presidency of the company. So Yeah, that's not a guy you can trust with your playing cards. No, exactly. See, you got to know when to walk away. And that wasn't it. Uh, Yamauchi is usually described, the younger Yamauchi is usually described as being really intense. That That's like by people who liked him. <laughs> and I've seen pictures of him. He has, you know, a friendly face and everything, prematurely silver hair. He's an intense little guy and he's a horrible human being. <laughs> I think this is a really important thing to understand about him. Okay. Is he's a rich narcissist. <laughs> you, you, when I started telling you there's a billionaire involved in this story, you said something about how psychopaths make money mm-hmm. and get rich. Well, evidently, narcissists inherit money. Yeah. And that's what happened here. And he really wanted to be important. And just being the president of a successful company was not important enough. So he kept trying to expand the company and find new ways to do this. <laughs> you look really nervous. <laughs> I'm terrified that you're going to tell me he opened a casino in New Jersey and a series of unsuccessful <laughs> New York hotels. <laughs> no, he he expanded into ramen, rice, taxis, and love hotels, which were, mm-hmm. you know, paid by the hour. Yeah. This was 70s Japan that this is happening, <laughs> that he's really trying to make this push. So he's, in fairness, he's been president of the company for 25 years, and he's just... It's become his life. He's alienated himself from his family by this point. He has a son and two daughters. They're terrified of him. He never comes home. And when he does, they're just like, who's the scary man who's always angry? (laughs) The anecdote that I think says the most about him is for his daughter Yoko's 20th birthday. He took her out to his favorite geisha club. How fun for her. And when she left, he stayed. So, he's not a nice man. He had a total of three son-in-laws. I'm assuming there was a divorce involved somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's why his dad peaced out. (laughs) Like, who's this little asshole? I'm thinking that might have a lot to do with why he became an asshole, honestly. (laughs) But (laughs) in fairness, assholes are made a lot of the times. But he forced two of them to change their surname to Yamauchi. So this is the kind of guy he is. He's a Corbin Corbin. Yes, yes, he is familiar in this regard. One of the things he really wants to be able to do, he knows that the real key to making Nintendo a really big company is expanding into America. Mm -hmm. So he taps his son-in-law, the one he hadn't asked to change his name, Minoru Arakawa. And asks him to be the president of Nintendo of America. Now, Minoru, or Mino, as he was called, he had already turned him down for job. This is Yoko's husband. She did not want him working with her dad. Mm -hmm. Because her dad was an asshole. Yeah. And basically had a real bad tendency to do the things he's about to do. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's that. Mino lives in Vancouver. He speaks English fluently. He has actually driven across the USA in a beat-up old van. He lives in Vancouver, Washington, or Vancouver, Vancouver, British British Columbia. Columbia. 
yeah, at this point, that is where he is. And he's the scion of a wealthy textiles family. He's used to money, but he's used to being able to handle money, if that makes sense. And he's not full of himself. So he's actually, he's a much cooler person when you get right down to it. And he's kind of been underestimated, and he does eventually take the job. And Yoko's really mad about it. <laughs> she starts smoking a lot because <laughs> she does not trust her dad. And no wonder. He does take the job and agrees that they're going to have to move. So they're going to have to move to the USA. And specifically, they're going to need to move to New York City is the first thought. Because New York is the capital of games markets. When is this again? When are we talking about This is 1980. Okay, so what games are games at this point? Well, we're talking really about like novelty items. Nintendo had had some successes with like toys, really Mm -hmm. cheap little toys. They had a telescoping arm that had been invented by a guy on staff. He was a repairman, actually. They were doing the Game & Watch games, which I don't know if you ever saw anything like this. They were kind of big when I was growing up, which is you'd have, I saw a later generation of them now that I think about it, but you'd have a popular video game. You'd have like a watch version of that game where Pitfall Harry would just be running and just jump over things and duck under things. Those are the only two things he can do, and that's the game. <laughs> um, it was on your wrist. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. Or Or a little flat screen it was early lcds there's you know really it's like the equivalent of a digital clock of a character can blip to one place or another on the screen and things move a little bit i had a star wars tie fighter game like that actually okay where the it could be in like one of five places that's it yeah that it was those types of games and they tried getting into that and they'd had some success with it their biggest successes have been with a gentleman named gunpei yokoi Doing my best. You're um, fine, honestly. No, he yeah. he had he was a repairman who had become who had started to become their chief inventor. Oh, but they did not know they were doing video games at this point. They'd had about five video games in Japan, and none of them were huge successes. They were just trying to figure out any way to distribute to the United States. So what they did was they had two guys in uh, Washington State. That was their Northwest distribution. There were two truckers. Their <laughs> names were Ron Judy and Al Stone, and they were paid on commission. So this is going to be a theme that they have no money. <laughs> He's given them a huge job and no money. That was the entire plan that Yamauchi had, is I want this to happen. I don't want to invest in it. <laughs> That's why I want my son-in-law to do it. So they drive from Vancouver into Washington They cross the border on May 18th, 1980. Now, you're a Washingtonian, so does that date sound familiar to you at all? I'm thinking Mount St. Helens. Yes, (laughs) you are exactly right. This was considered a bad omen. Yeah, they cross the border and a huge fucking volcano explodes. They survived. Good. good. Yeah. Yeah, very few people actually died unless they were... Yeah. too close but that's it's not great no <laughs> it doesn't that, bode to, great. To, yeah to be in the general neighborhood is kind of a surprise <laughs> and, and they began a trek to new york city from there from washington state from washington state in a car okay and they make it set up shop 
and discover that this is a terrible idea. This is during New York's shithole period. Yeah, this is pre-Giuliani. Yeah, exactly. That I wrote crap hole period. Apparently talking to you makes me swear a little bit more than, than uh, my notes. It's just the show. It's the effect of the show. Yeah. Pretty soon we're going to somehow be flirting in a lesbian way. <laughs> And uh, we'll talk about a serial killer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I was about to bring up the assassination of John Lennon. That had just happened. Bad omens. Bad omens. Yeah. New York's guardian angels. They were doing the vigilante thing after the subway vigilante had mm-hmm. inspired them. Bernie gets That asshole. Yeah. You had vigilante gangs. You had gang gangs. You had a lot of violent crime. And, and you had, honestly, Donald J. Trump making things worse with advertisements blaming innocent people because they were black. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, Yoko does not speak much English. Vancouver was a lot more Asian friendly. New York has Chinatown. Yeah. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're 35 years out of the rape of Nanking, but yeah, uh, a it's, generation out. Not yeah, three. exactly. It's uh, yeah. So you're not going to find a lot of friends in that neighborhood on top of that. And this was the real killer. Japan is 14 hours ahead. Good luck ever having a meeting. There's no email. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can communicate by phone or uh, teletype, I guess, is the equivalent (laughs) that they had at that point. They didn't really even have fax machines. They stay there for a few months and they give up and say this will never work and we hate it. What were they trying to sell at this point? Those those little prototype games they had, or mm-hmm. those- uh, it just to- it was mainly crappy toys, okay. and that they did get sent three thousand cabinets, arcade cabinets of a game called Radar Scope. Now I had to go to YouTube. Of course, they have it there. Um, it's misidentified as. Shigeru Miyamoto's first original game. He did not design it. Okay, his first game design is. Donkey Kong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, but it's basically like somewhere in between Galaga and Space Invaders. It's not a very innovative game at all. It's a very standard space shooter. The other thing to really know about Radar Scope is that arcade owners hated it because the noises it made were too annoying. Oh. Can you imagine? Standing out in an arcade is the most annoying machine. (laughs) I mean, you you didn't spend any time in 1980s arcades, I'm assuming. No, 90s arcades. Okay. But my ear is definitely filled with that sort of... Exactly. Evidently, the beeping sounds specifically were really problematic. Wow. That does not bode well for it. They ended up shipping them first to New Jersey and then shipping them across the country because they needed to have them on hand, and they sold a 1,000 of them, which was enough to break even. Now they have 2,000 arcade cabinets gathering dust in warehouses, and they're having to pay for that Mm -hmm. with money they don't have because they're getting zero support. Oh, yeah. They have a very serious problem already. Yamauchi's instinct, he's the CEO, is to give up. Mm -hmm. He's just like, well, you failed. Yeah. It's like, this is what he was trying to prove, is everyone but him fails. And uh, that's all he really needed to do. 
yeah, well, if they had succeeded, it would have been his genius, and when they failed, it was their failure. Exactly, but Arakawa is tenacious, and he manages to talk him into making one last try. But his argument is, at this point, Nintendo had radar scope. They had a game called Space Fever that is basically another one that's basically the same as the first one. Space Launcher, which is a direct ripoff of Space Invaders. It looks exactly the same. <laughs> Monkey Magic, a ripoff of Breakout, which is a bounce the ball into blocks game. I don't know if you ever saw Breakout. Mm-hmm. They had a Pac-Man ripoff called Head on In that had race cars and was not a very good maze race game. And something called Sheriff that was released in the U.S. as Bandito. I have never heard of any of these. That is important, yes. <laughs> yeah, Sheriff, they thought would be a real good match for the U.S. markets, but it had two joysticks. It was like a quick draw game or something. Okay. People did not know how to play it, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and they would look at the controls and be stymied, and then they'd lose. And, I think yeah. you can either rip off everybody or you can innovate with mechanics. Exactly. Probably doing both is not the best plan. Exactly. He did agree under pressure he or under a lot of pushback from Araka, who's real good at arguing back with his with his father-in-law. He does this throughout his career, and it's his best move to make a, have Nintendo make a game for America. And that was great. He won't put any of his game designers on it. What he does instead is starts polling in-house for people that have an idea, and Shigeru Miyamoto is the gentleman who responds. He is an industrial artist. He loves electronics and music. And he's 29 years old and considered a complete slacker. He's an underachiever. And you know how Japan loves underachievers. (laughs) (laughs) He had a lot of ideas. And they said, okay, we're going to give this to you, but we're going to assign someone with a little bit more experience. And that is Gunpei Yokoi, who is their inventor. Who's been building the arm guy? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. He built he built an extensible arm. He, he's been doing the game and watch games. He's never done a video game like this, but he's a very optimistic guy. He has he's about ten years older. And he has a lot more experience with actual games, so that's you know really clever, and is at least a measure of support for what's going to be going on. Here is his idea. Popeye. A license somebody else already owns. Well, Nintendo actually uh, owned the license for Popeye Ramen. It was one of these weird accidents. Okay. Popeye Ramen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to take that on board. And so they thought, hey, probably we can get the license for this. It turns out, of course, that that was going to take years. I mean, it made a lot of sense. They just had Robin Williams' movie come out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And And that made so much (laughs) money. (laughs) But what he takes away from this is, okay, it doesn't matter. I, I have two big ideas here. One, I want to tell a story. Two, it's about a little guy who beats a big guy. And years later, he's going to get to actually design the Popeye video game, which was an arcade game. And it, it was really hard. I couldn't, I, I was <laughs> lost so badly. Bluto reaches through the floor. Oh, I did not fair. No, how can he do this? But he'd always kind of look around for us. So I don't know. I should have, I wasn't a very good video game player, is what I'm saying. 
You're very good at pinball now, though. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I like pinball. <laughs> so he takes from that the inspiration of a little guy saving a lady from a big ape. And then they says, say, okay, what do we have to work with? Well, we have a kind of cheap monitor that has been turned sideways for radar scope. Because we still have 2,000 of these that we have to get rid of. We have a pretty good microprocessor. It's a uh, Zilog Z80, which was an 8-bit microprocessor. It was this kind of cheap, generic version of Intel's 8080. But it, it was a good processor. It could do the job. The monitor, though, could not deal with a lot of geometric shapes. You had to have basically pixel graphics, mm -hmm. big pixels. You have a digital-to-analog converter for sounds, so it can do a pretty decent musical score on it. You have, for controls, one joystick and one button. Now, at this point in video games, if you had a button involved, then it was going to be for shooting things. And it is from there, he says, well, what, what can we do that's different? I don't want a guy who's just shooting a gun at something. I want a guy who has to work hard to get to where he's going. That people can say, okay, what well, I, I feel like him sometimes. So he creates Jumpman. <laughs> that is now, now what does Jumpman do? <laughs> <laughs> he can jump over barrels. He, he can jump like three times his own height. So it's pretty impressive, really. <laughs> and because of the limitations of the technology at the time and the processor they had, he's about 50 pixels or so. And the reason he has a mustache is because they left those spaces blank and it's just all on a black background. Oh. They could use fewer pixels oh. if they gave him a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that worked. And it, I mean, in fairness, it seems like kind of uh, a cheat because Donkey Kong's six times his size and just climbs up there and basically does the Wreck-It Ralph thing of jumps up and down on the whole screen, gets messed up when he gets on there. Wait, Donkey Kong's in Jumpman? Yes. This is the game Donkey Kong that's oh. being created based on Popeye. But yeah, what? <laughs> and yeah. Now we have spring Hill Jack and a King Kong ripoff. I'm, exactly. I'm so yeah. confused. He was writing all of this and was t doing his best to... Uh, this is Miyamoto that's doing the writing. He was doing his best to translate. So he was like, Donkey Kong is a good name for a stubborn ape. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that that I've read some other attributions that it, it was Monkey Kong and mistranslated and other things like this, but that's that's the one I like the most mm -hmm. and, and he, he the, the story's never the same twice. It's one of those origin stories. Yeah. And the other characters in the game are Jumpman and Lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And of course, he's wearing overalls because they were simple to design and a simple hat so he is a carpenter mm-hmm mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he is a carpenter who jumps over barrels chiefly climbs ladders and grabs hammers and smashes things with them i get the ladders and the hammer but i don't get where the barrel comes in donkey kong is at the top of the screen mm -hmm. and he is throwing barrels down and they just kind of roll down this uh roller coaster screen that is four different kind of jack straw 
uh, misaligned levels. Is the premise that they're in some kind of warehouse? They look to be in warehouses more and more. It's like a construction site, actually. Okay. Is what it is, okay. is how it starts out. And there are four levels. The second one is a pie factory. Third one, I think, is some sort of ice factory. And the fourth one involves a lot of moving up and down type level like things that'll crush you if you go too high. You can't go off the screen and a bunch of springs that jump and are trying to get you, but they always jump in exactly the same place. So you have to pay close attention. So construction site, ice factory and fever dream. Yes. It sounds like. And And bad acid. Yeah. And the final one, you're trying to collect all the rivets so that the floor will fall out from Donkey Kong and he'll land on his head and you can be united with your love. What's Donkey Kong's beef with construction? It was mean to him. And he he possesses Lady in yes. some way? Yes, he, he keeps picking her up and carrying her to the next screen. Okay. Yeah, and very much in a King Kong fashion. She is supposed to resemble Fay Ray. She doesn't retain the name Lady forever. She becomes Pauline, which is based on the wife of the warehouse's manager, who was named Don James. His wife was named Polly. And he was very forgiving of the fact that they never paid their rent, that they had no money. Oh. And apparently, here's where things get a little funny. The warehouse's owner hated this. <laughs> and kept he was getting a lot of hot water about it, but kept saying, they're, they're going to be good for it. We just got to trust them. I think mm-hmm. this is going to pay off for us if we take their word for it. Which, he his instincts were very good there. The warehouse's owner was named Mario Segal. He had a dark mustache and a furious temper. That's at least the anecdote about where Mario's name came from, is everyone was like, they look like the same person, and they both kind of jump around a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> they had this idea. They had the technology. They have... 2,000 cabinets. They now have a game that's been designed for them, and they get sent the circuit boards for it. And this is 1980s electronics. There are no instructions whatsoever. Oh, no. Miyamoto actually technically has an engineering degree. He likes electronics, but he's not an electrical engineer, if you understand. Well, even then... Yeah. The the jumps in technology that are happening, I feel like, would have been very hard to keep up on yeah. if you were five years. You know, if you got your degree in 1970 and it's 1980. Exactly. It's and, and this ball game. And this is uh, solid state electronics. So you have one circuit board that will do one thing. So they have to take it out, replace it in these cabinets, get them completely repainted, redone, turn the monitor uh, from on its side to straightforward and make this into a new game. And there are four of them, <laughs> including, no, five including, sorry, there were five because they're two truckers. Okay. And they're like, Let, we're going to do two. And after a lot of work in August in Shelton, Washington, in 107 degrees, Mm -hmm. because it is an insane summer. 
they it met. gets hot around here. It does. I didn't realize that, but this is, I mean, but that's just insane. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> they have two prototypes that they have put together, and they sell them to two bars that already own some radar scope games. Do you like our crappy knockoff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here, try this. But, you know. It's um, very sweaty. <laughs> yeah. One was called the Spot Tavern, and one was called Goldie's. Okay. They were both near Seattle. I checked. I don't think either one of them is still open. The Goldies, I found it looked like it had closed in 2014. So mm-hmm. almost made it. Almost made it. It's like the original home of Donkey Kong. Are they selling them like in a branded way at this point? Like are the arcade, are the, are the boxes decorated? Yes. They, okay. they, have re, they have redesigned it. They do have art on the side and things like that. Miyamoto, amongst other things, is an industrial artist. So he had put together designs for that. And they're calling it Donkey Kong or they're calling it Jumpman? They are calling it Donkey Kong. Yeah, they are calling it Donkey Kong. And these are all red cabinets. Okay. Um, that's going to be important, a little bit important later. And they do get them to these two locations. Now, they already had games there that were Nintendo games. And remember Ron and Al? They're getting paid on commission. Mm-hmm. Part of the way they get paid is they can take a percentage of the quarters oh. home with them. <sighs> That's cute so, and sad. Exactly. And because they have no other source of income right now, this is much worse than an internet startup. Yeah. <laughs> this is just terrible. They, they are like destitute. <laughs> and they've been hanging out with these guys for months saying, I hope to God we will make money. They are visiting every day because of that. So they start realizing that these are making a lot more money. These are bringing in $200 a week in quarters. That's like 20 pounds a quarter. So they're going in all the time, though, because they're like, can I have a cheeseburger today? Exactly. Good news. This is is lots of cheeseburgers. (laughs) Donkey Kong is doing well. And that tells them, okay, let's move forward with this. And they convert the other 2,000. It is, again, just on a shoestring. It's just those guys. <laughs> That's I, where I feel like that kind of urban legend can take off a little more, in that imagine if Donkey Kong hadn't taken off, there would have yeah. been like a handful of people in a tiny town in Washington who would have said, I wonder what ever happened with that game when I was a kid where I was like a jumping dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a donkey was, no, a monkey was throwing barrels at me? That can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a totally surrealistic game. And, yeah. and of course... The franchise only gets weirder from there. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Miyamoto. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but they are converting these 2,000 cabinets by hand, just five dudes. But every single one of them sells. Everything, every single time they convert one, it is a sale. Immediately, they start, they are making money. They get sent another uh, huge shipment from Japan in blue cabinets. While this is still happening because it's doing so well. What happened to branding? The first 2000 was nothing compared to what they sell later. Okay. Because in the first year, they make $180 million. Whoa. The Pac-Man is about the only other game that was bigger than them. I had no idea Donkey Kong was so big. It was one of the biggest. But yeah, seriously, in their first year, they make $180 million. In their second year... They make a hundred million just on Donkey Kong. 
So this is a huge hit. And, you know, now... That's video, a lot of quarters. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, it's a lot. Of, I'm, and I'm really curious how the money was shared because you're selling the games to a bar. Mm-hmm. And then the bar is getting some of that money, or the arcade is. But you know, I'm just very curious, and I wouldn't have thought of it if it hadn't been for Ron and Al getting paid in quarters that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, a good question. But that whole thing of where Nintendo America's distribution network, mm-hmm. that paid off. <laughs> that was somehow this all starts to work out. It's looking really good for them. What do you think happens when things are looking really good for you? You're making a lot of money. A billionaire asshole from Japan ruins it. No, no, actually, no. He, he, he admits that this has gone really well and this is kind of his dream. He wants to be bigger. It's never enough. But he's admitting that this is starting to look good. They actually uh, make a deal with Coleco who is one of Atari's competitors. They're going oh, yeah. to package Donkey Kong with the ColecoVision. I was going to say, I remember ColecoVision. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say I have heard Mo Money, Mo Problems. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what happens. Someone wants your money is what happens when you have it. The government. No. that I mean, yes, but no. The Portland Pinball Mafia. Universal Studios. Oh! (laughs) Who had made a version of King Kong in 1975, seven years earlier, and they are claiming that Donkey Kong is a ripoff of King Kong. I wonder why they remade it if they were actually trying to... Because that's about, what is that, a 45-year lag? If they were just trying to keep that license in general. Ooh, this is a fun one. Oh, okay. This, This is where things get really fun. Coleco folds like a cheap card table. They immediately say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and like cut their ties with Nintendo. They pay them $5 million. And it's like, you, you, it's Universal Studios. They have a lot more money than we do. And Nintendo, and Arakawa specifically, looks around the room and says, I'm actually surrounded by piles of cash and talks to his lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, you were kind of right, actually, that Yamauchi mm-hmm. back in Japan, he did want to pay Universal. He just wanted to give them hush money, basically, and and make them go away. He, you know, had dealt with gamblers a lot. He was probably yeah. used to this principle, honestly. Cost of doing business. Yeah. But uh, Arakawa said, actually, we have hundreds of millions of dollars. We can actually afford a legal battle if we need one. He talks to his lawyer, Howard Lincoln. And Lincoln says, no, I think we've got a case. Because they're not too similar. I think Universal is probably hoping for the hush money. They are. And they keep going to Universal and uh, talking about them and have a, talking to them, have a few meetings with them. And they ask them to produce a chain of title through a series of letters, proving that they own King Kong. Universal sends them a series of letters saying, give us money. <laughs> they have a meeting. The president of Universal comes to the meeting because anytime you have a meeting of this kind... It's usually because someone is about to acquiesce. Oh. He's used to that. Yeah. He wants it, to be in at the kill. Exactly. And instead, he is in at the, but why haven't you shown us you own the property if you want us to give you money? So it goes to court. Universal 
is just going to keep sticking to that. Um, Howard Lincoln brings in a trial attorney named John Kirby. And Kirby is a very high-priced kind of... Um, Pink cloud that eats things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had made that connection briefly, but oh my God. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But no, he's, he's a very kind of shiny type mm-hmm. lawyer. He's a showman. But he is smart. He did his research. And at trial, he says, actually... In 1975, the original King Kong film sued Universal. And Universal proved that it was in the public domain at that time. Oh my gosh. Universal, you knew you done fucked up. Uh Uh-huh, but they could not stop. (sighs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, it's a 1933 film property. It's in the public domain. Universal were the ones who proved in court that it was in the public domain. And they just lost that paperwork. Oh, my God. <laughs> Voiced by their own attorney. It, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Miyamoto is uh, free to keep on making Donkey Kong games. Yeah. So in 1982, he makes Donkey Kong Jr., Sounds like he's free to make King Kong games. (laughs) You're right, if he wanted to. (laughs) Okay, Donkey Kong Jr. Donkey Kong Jr. So, in this one, you are not playing Mario. You're playing Donkey Kong's son. Or Jumpman. Yeah, exactly. They they called him Mario by this point, yeah. And uh, it starts when you see Mario and his twin brother, also Mario, Pulling a huge cage with Donkey Kong in it across there because it's just it's just a carving cutout of him. They haven't they haven't done any color swaps or anything. It's just I don't think one guy could move this. And this little monkey in a T-shirt that says Junior on it. He's he's an ape. I thought he was a monkey, and then I looked at footage and I was like, No, they didn't give him a tail. He doesn't have a tail. No. No, but he is an ape who is going to be climbing a bunch of vines and knocking down fruit in an attempt to get to a key to rescue his father. And Mario stands there, sinister, winding up animated bear traps and letting them go to chase down the little monkey and kill him. Mario, what the fuck? Mario is the villain of this game. And yeah. he's a pretty harsh villain. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a, why don't you want the father and son to know each other? I completely also am still reeling from the concept that Donkey Kong Jr. doesn't have a tail. Yeah. It's like when I found out Curious George doesn't have a tail. He doesn't? Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you the other thing I wanted to tell you about Donkey Kong Jr., which it opens. Look at to- that little fucker. Oh my god. Yeah, he's not a monkey, he's an ape. You're totally right. The curious little ape. It even says <laughs> curious George is a sweet African monkey. Maybe there's some kind of accident. <laughs> it opens to Mario pulling this pulling him in. To box Takato and Fugue in D minor. That's the kind of villain they are casting him as. Do you know that at all? No, but when you said box, I thought you meant as in like fisticuffs. I thought nope. I thought he was gonna have to fight in a ring. Da, da, da. 
na 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 na. Oh, that's what that is. That yeah. I'll okay. edit it in. Actually, I bet that's public domain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bach is public domain. <laughs> now Shigeru did this. It's interesting because he did do the scores for both Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. and a lot of the music for, you know, for Super Mario Brothers, which is one of the most famous scores. Um, oh, no, no, I'm wrong. They brought in someone new at that point. They brought in a real musician at that point and composer. Anyway, so they're free to do all kinds of stuff with Donkey Kong at this point. So that is when they move forward with Saturday Supercade. Which is... Is this a cartoon thing? Yes, it is a Saturday morning cartoon with a bunch of popular video games reimagined to be terrible. Oh! <laughs> it was a brilliant right. move, obviously. It included Frogger. Mm-hmm. So the Frogger... Car- I have to tell you about all of these because they're so bad. Frogger is a journalist. I'm sorry? <laughs> He is running around under high pressure from his boss all the time. He has a friend that's a turtle, because he jumped on turtles' backs in the game, I guess, and like a girl frog. And there's a running gag where he gets run over by stuff, and they reinflate him with a bicycle pump. Like, every time. That happens once every episode. I'm so upset. Cubert, who naturally is um, kind of in a... A really futuristic version of the 1950s, and he's being chased around by Coily, who's a greaser and a bully, and shoots things out of his nose that he called Slippy Doos. Did you research this, or is this part of your comprehensive compendium of terrible 80s cartoons? This is why I wanted to talk about this, <laughs> I'll be honest, is that I loved I loved how bad these were uh, when did, I was did, growing up. You watched these. Oh, God, up. yeah. No, this one, I was religious about this. You had Pitfall, which is just Indiana Jones ripoffs, and, um, and then you had Donkey Kong, which consisted of Mario... Chasing Donkey Kong, Pauline is now his niece. She intervenes occasionally because Mario is getting too close. And Donkey Kong, voiced by Soupy Sales. Right. Matt, you can't just put pop culture concepts in a blender and, and then put it on TV to scar minds. Well, it just happened. It's not my fault. Are you going to show me something? Yeah, I'm going to show you something, which is the this is the first voice of Mario. And ever, and I could also do the Saturday Supercade intro on this if you want, but we'll skip ahead to about the two minute mark, which I'll go ahead and tell you that it says Saturday Supercade parentheses really bad cartoon. Oh, there goes Frogger. Can't use a butterfly nut to catch a gorilla. <laughs> okay, that's presumably Pitfall. Mm-hmm. And he grabbed a helicopter. <laughs> He's carrying a treasure chest. Oh, there's Cubert coming out of his pink Flintstone house. 
Yeah, see what I mean by this surrealistic, futuristic version of the 1950s? Oh, he's riding a manhole cover like a hoverboard. Mm-hmm, for no reason. And there's Junior. There's Soupy. Yeah, you have to barrel. <laughs> you got all of the Flintstones you running sound effects. <laughs> nope. That's a yellow something. That's Mario. It's literally just the characters running and commenting on the fact that they're running. But did you hear Mario's <laughs> voice? <laughs> I could last just as long as you. It's, it's like just the most generic voice I can imagine. It's so amazing. But no, that ran for two seasons. How many episodes was that? Uh, I did see that number when I was looking at things today. Um, I think that they made over 90 segments for it, though, because, you know, each they were doing like four cartoons in an episode. So each one's five minutes long. <laughs> it is that bad. The second season, they brought in Donkey Kong Jr. They brought in Space Ace, which was a Don Bluth uh, Laserdisc game. It was the sequel to Dragon's Lair. Do you know what I'm talking about? But with Dragon's these at all? Lair was an arcade game, right? Yes, and yeah. so was Space Ace, yeah. They played that on Stranger Things. Yes, they did play Dragon's Lair on Stranger Things. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. Um, it was, but yeah, it was a Laserdisc game. It had really good animation. And that's why, and of course, the video game everyone was waiting for there to be a cartoon of, Kangaroo. I've never heard of this. This is correct. Everyone has not heard of this. <laughs> But there needed to be a cartoon of it when you're doing this. <laughs> so 1983 also brings Donkey Kong 3, starring Stanley the Exterminator. Is Donkey Kong in this? Yes, he is, actually. He is the villain again. Like all giant apes on the run from a small man with a flit gun, he relies on angry beehives to do his work. He, he punches them at the beginning of the game and gets them to attack and gets the swarm of insects to attack you. Donkey Kong, you chose the one weapon yeah. that he was qualified to counter. Well, and as someone who was not really very good at video games, I can tell you what happened if the timer ran out on a level, which is he would jump down and trample you. Well, just Except, do that from the it, yeah, why was from. he why was he hanging up there occasionally hitting these things and knocking bees at you? <laughs> and your entire object is to use your is to jump up platforms, use your flit gun to shoot him in the crotch until he moves high enough that his hands knock down the supports for the beehives and he gets embarrassed and crawls to the next level until eventually he ends up with his head stuck in a beehive. This feels like this was a premise for another game or maybe somebody's weird porn. Actually, that was a really good observation. It was actually a repurposing of one of Nintendo's earlier space games. Oh, okay. So that was what happened. Yeah. Uh, 
but it was not made by Shigeru Miyamoto <laughs> and is a I actually really liked it as a kid, but it is not a popular game. It was probably not a very good game. I think it's safe to say they start releasing a lot of Game & Watch titles with Mario on them, including Mario's Cement Factory and Mario's Bombs Away. But they also release Mario Brothers in 1983. This is the first time that Mario has a brother, Luigi. Luigi Mario. Luigi Mario and Mario Mario. That is when this is established. <laughs> they don't make Luigi the skinny one at this point or the tall one. He is just color swapped. He's just the green one. Yeah, he's just, he's the green one with, yeah, he, he's just, he's Mario with a lot less fashion sense because <laughs> his color choices are lime green and some kind of indigo sneakers. And it's <laughs> just like, dude, I don't care if it is the 80s. <laughs> this is bad. And it's kind of a jump underneath things and knock them over, then jump on top and kick them game. It is, um, it's a little bit competitive, but there's no way to attack each other in the game. That, so really it's half co-op, half competitive. You're trying to make more points, but you're not shooting each other at all. And, um, and meanwhile, things are coming out of pipes and even had a terrible, uh, commercial on TV with a theme song that was something like something's gumming up the plumbing for Luigi's in a bind. <laughs> Killer crabs are out to get him. Fighter flies are right behind. Now I remember it. <laughs> what? Yep. There's something. Holy cripes. They're all coming out the pipes. Mario, where are you? Oh no, that's reminding me of something. I kind of remember this. <laughs> I kind of remember this. <laughs> Mario Brothers 1983 commercial. Yeah, this is it is, live action? It is. Oh, Jesus. What the shit? <laughs> oh, Mario Brothers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It was so painful and, sur and just terrifying. Christ Almighty! Okay. Yeah, I, I kind yeah, it's memorable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, actually, you're pointing out that they say Mario. They do. <laughs> um, that does bring up an interesting thing about the name Mario that probably made it popular as that made it work for Nintendo as well, which is it is not just an Italian name, it's also a Spanish name and a Portuguese name, but it has kind of the pattern of Japanese names, like Yukio. Oh, it does, you're right. That it's a name that's distinctive, but you don't have to, like, copyright. Exactly. There's not a lot of famous Marios. There's yeah. a couple. Yeah. At that point, uh, oh, what's his name, who wrote The Godfather, Mario Puzo. Yeah. Was, was kind of the big Mario in the world. Mm -hmm. So he did do, uh, Miyamoto did do Mario Brothers, and that, that was his idea. He also designs a non-Mario game during this time called Devil World that I think has to be mentioned. Devil World? Devil World. You play a green dragon named Tamagon, who is uh, dodging through mazes in a, in a manner not quite like Pac-Man. Mazes in hell, because he's going to fight Satan. Sorry, the green dragon named Tamagon is going through mazes and hell to fight Satan. Mm-hmm. He gets his power-ups from crosses and Bibles. 
Because you get weird filters when you see things from the Japanese perspective sometimes. It reminds me of a toy called God Jesus that's a robot with a giant crawl scepter. God Jesus? Mm-hmm. You could explain the premise and plot of any of these games to me, like, outside a grocery store, and I would walk away from you really quickly. <laughs> and it's true. You see, there's a green dragon who's named Tomagon, and he's going to fight Satan. Five hours. Cool. That's very cool. Don't follow. But yeah, that was, as it turns out, is not a game you can release during the satanic panic in the United no, States. But he's fighting Satan. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, th- this is this is around the time when Dungeons and Dragons was probably mm. the work of the devil and, and video games were definitely devil stuff and heavy metals mm. were probably contaminated. So, no, wait, that's music. Music. <laughs> yeah. 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 And again, it gives the Polybius thing that nudge of, well, mm. maybe our video games aren't evil but maybe a video game is evil uh, yeah exactly i think it does tie really well into that yeah, yeah so they kind of like i think your whole deal is mario they put him back on it and in 1985 he comes out with not a game but a whole world to explore super mario brothers i can't figure out why mario became the the flagship product of this. He doesn't have like that distinctive a premise. Yeah, I he think doesn't it, even seem to have very consistent characterization. He doesn't. He's just a little dude who wears overalls and jumps. I think that's the key, actually, is uh, that he was very generic. Okay. And you could write pretty much whatever you wanted to on him. He, another name they considered for him, by the way, was the Japanese translation of middle-aged man. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's 32 levels with eight boss battles. You explore castles. You are trying to rescue a princess. And again, he's trying to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what he was really doing with the original. We're going to do Popeye the game. So he's trying to tell a story, which a lot of arcade games and video games weren't really doing up to that point. Unless Circle Man being haunted by ghosts that he has to eat. Yeah, story. exactly. Yeah, you can't really figure out what <laughs> Pac-Man's story is. <laughs> but but Donkey Kong was pretty simple, and now he's expanding it. Donkey Kong Jr. is pretty simple, of a son trying to rescue his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't so much have stories as they had premises. Yes, yeah, they. but it's a plot, Yeah, at the very least. And uh, Super Mario Brothers is, he's a plumber. Trying to rescue a princess in a completely insane mushroom and monster-filled world where he's jumping on bullets and trying to avoid giant plants that try to eat him and ducking into pipes. Well, but in the Where Are You Mario thing or whatever. Mm. Oh he, yes. He is there are pipes. It looks plumbery. That and that yeah, that was the original Mario Brothers as opposed to Super Mario okay, Brothers. Okay, but that's when mm-hmm. he becomes a plumber instead of carpenter. The, yes, that is when they finally give him an occupation. Okay. So yeah. It was you know, in arcades it was a really big deal. But I guess I have to back up a little bit, because something happened in 1983, which is the bottom fell out of the console game market. A lot of the time, they blame Atari for this because of really two games. 
there were two huge mistakes that Atari made, and Atari was just the the giant in the playground. He could they could not topple Atari. Nintendo had no idea involving toppling Atari. They were hoping to partner with Atari. The two games were famously E.T. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one that was probably E.T. was just unplayable, but probably an even worse thing that they did was they came out with a really bad version of Pac-Man in 1983. So about three years after Pac-Man came out, they made 12 million of them. There were 10 million Atari 2600s that could actually play it that had been sold. Oh, talk about <laughs> jumping and hoping the net's going to be there. Okay. The net was not there. No. And they used all their money. This ends up uh, being a bit of a subject in Atari Game Over, which is a documentary that came out in 2014 that is about excavating the Alamogordo landfill where they buried all of this, dug a huge pit ran it over with steamrollers and covered it up because they did not want to ever think about it again. But Atari was never the same after this. Wow. Um, And consoles were never the same after this because all the retailers had got burned. Mm -hmm. They, and they had also just gotten burned by Betamax as well. Format wars. Format wars between Betamax and VHS And they did not want to guess and figure out which console was the one that would sell. So they were spooked. LaserDisc made it even worse because Mm -hmm. you've got this other wonky format that no one has. And they're just like, no, we're not going to stock this. We're not going to bring this up. Um, So they basically were not stocking consoles. Hmm. But... To his credit, and you don't hear me say that a lot in here, do you? Hiroshi Yamauchi had a vision, which was, we're going to make our own console, and we're going to make it different, and we're going to make it better. So, what did they come out with? The Famicom. I haven't heard of it. That's correct. It was never released in the United States. However, it did sell over 7 million units in Japan, and it actually was pretty innovative. It was 1983 again, so just the worst time. Let me check. And uh, it actually had modem support. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That there was nothing to download was the problem, but if you, but they would patch things. And there was no content was the main problem here. No one was using it a lot. Most people didn't have modems. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think. Well, Even in know, Japan. I didn't know what a modem was in 1983 because I didn't know what like, <laughs> pooping in the toilet was. But I don't I don't feel like modems were a big factor in the world. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of for, downloading a patch for a game is hilarious at that stage. Yeah, it's just, it, for the first time ever, they get a reminder that making video games is actually really hard. It has a bad chip. Oh. They were like, well, we can package Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and our new Popeye game, because they finally got to make that, <laughs> plus a microphone and moto support on this, and they put a lot into this, and they have a bad chip. Yamauchi is like, oh no, what have we done? And uh, he wants to he wants to just basically say, screw you, you bought our, our thing, and that will never do anything for it. But 
His son-in-law, yet again, says he goes behind his father-in-law's back and says, we're going to guarantee every sale. If you have a problem, we will replace it for free. Wow. And they did not just replace the chip. They put an entire new motherboard. And it's a brilliant move because after that, people trust Nintendo in a way they did not trust other console companies. Yeah. Now, this is just in Japan. I'm sorry. It sold 19 million copies in Japan. Wow. It was, it was yeah, and that, that's huge. That never made it to, to the American markets. Why did it have microphone support? What was that for? That I They had it actually in one of the controllers. I think the hope, and I don't know if they actually acted on this, was to be able to do like some singing games or even voice activated games that there were some early games that you would do like, yeah, yeah, when you wanted something to fire, things like that. <laughs> um, and Nintendo does in this period kind of become the king of the weird stuff that we're going to put with our console because they come up with the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. That's what they try to sell in the United States, except retailers still aren't buying consoles. So they package it with Rob. The robotic operating... Oh, where, where are you, Rob? Robotic operating buddy. I have to look this up. I need to know what this looks like. Um, If you have played Super Smash Brothers, actually, he's in there. That he is a, he is a very 80s-looking robot. Oh, an 80s robot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he looks like the Muppets 80s robot from the, from the uh, you know, five years ago Muppet movie. So they go, whoa, hell yes, he does. <laughs> and he's capable of, like, picking things up and stuff. Uh, they oh, actually tried one. to involve him with a couple games, but they're never very successful. So they basically wanted them to look like toys instead of a video game console. They shipped it with that and a light gun. Oh, he looks like Wally. Yeah, yes, that's very good. Yeah, he looks a lot like Wally. So this rollout comes in 1986, and they package the NES with Super Mario Brothers. And also, if you pay $20 more, you get the light gun and you get Duck Hunt. Oh, no, Duck Hunt. Yeah. Wait, so what could you play Super Mario Brothers on before, if not the NES? You could play arcade, arcade games. Game. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I got to say, it's weird how much I loved arcade games at this time i remember walking like a mile and a half to a 7-eleven to play joust <laughs> which again i wasn't very good at <laughs> it was just okay there you go <laughs> uh so it, and all this cost 130 dollars so they were really making a very ballsy move this was yeah. not much money to pay for a console they managed to ship 100,000 of these to the U.S. And again, Arakala goes behind his dad's back, his father-in-law's back, and says to the retailers, you can return them if you don't sell them. Aha. Uh -huh. And that is key because they will actually try at this point because they have nothing to lose but space and time. Yeah. So they're willing to gamble that much, and it's a moderate success. And later you're going to have the Super NES because of that, which is also going to involve modem support and things like that. They were really big on figuring out how to do new stuff. 
So we have 1987 Super Mario's Brothers 2, which they looked at and said, Americans will never be able to play this. It's too hard. (laughs) But it is kind of, it is later released as Super Mario The Lost Levels. Okay. But it is more surrealistic, jumping, let's uh, action. It's more strangeness. But fans of it, kind of think of it as a real essay on the video game's form. Hmm. <laughs> you get right down to it. That I've never played it, so I can't really talk about it very much, unfortunately. And in 1988, 1990 in the U.S., you have Super Mario Brothers 3, which includes the Tanuki costume. Oh, yeah. Which is the flying raccoon. It was so baffling to me, like in college, freshman year, saying... Why does he get put on a raccoon suit so he can fly with his tail? Yeah, raccoons don't fly. And I wasn't familiar with Tanuki at this point because I was yes. just not that big a nerd yet. Well, think about it, children. He couldn't Google it. <laughs> it's true. You know? No, I mean, the whole iconography of Mario is something that as a kid, I just went, okay, that's how things are. But now thinking about it as an adult, I'm like, wait, so you hit a box and coins come out? (laughs) A box that's just hanging in the sky and then a bullet with a face and then there's a little turtle with glasses and a cloud and chain chomps and all this kind of, what? Yeah, none of it's going to make sense to you. No. I mean, that's the good news. But no, but my point to all these games that are still coming out is he's still principal to Nintendo, still very popular, which kind of helps explain why uh, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show came out in 1989, which is a mix of live action and terrible animation. And the, the cartoons were extremely forgettable for me. Um, and I'm kind of too old for them, but my brother did watch them. <laughs> Mario is played by Captain Lou Albano, a professional wrestler who is getting old and fat. (laughs) So he looked a lot like Mario is what I'm saying. This is such a strange choice. Yeah. And I just got to play this for an actor named Danny Wells, who who starred in... Oh, God, I can't... um, I'm not going to remember the name of this movie. He's not a very well-known actor, but he was Luigi... I just got to play you do the Mario. Oh, no. Because this was how they would end every episode. There it is. Do the Mario. Swing your arms from side to side. Come on, it's time to go. Do the Mario. Take one step. And then again, let's do the Mario all together now. So that's to the score for the original. uh, Yeah. Yeah, original Super Mario's uh, score. Why is he on the set of the Roadrunner cartoons? (laughs) Like I said, they did not spend a lot of money on this. So, yeah. Is this when he became Italian? When did that happen? When he Uh, decided his name should be Mario? Jeez. I guess it did. He doesn't become super duper Italian until 1996. Really? Yes. So, yeah, like 21 years ago. And it's all, 1989 is also when I'm the sorry, Super... I'm sorry, did you just say 1996 was 21 years ago? You have to leave now. <laughs> this is so upsetting to me. Our... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how 
how I feel about that. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Okay, carry on. Yeah, but no, uh, Captain Lou, he was called Captain Lou Albano. He was both a heel and a face in professional wrestling. They He was in the military, so they gave him a rank of captain magically mm-hmm. because it's the WWF. And uh, he was a friend of Cindy Lauper's. So he appeared in some of her videos. These were his acting credits. So kids really liked him as Mario because he looked like Mario. And that was enough, I guess. All yeah. right. I've, I've lost my grip on the little rope that I use to hold on to in this sort of waving tide of nonsense. Well, you can tell that Mario is really popular at this point because it also has its own version of the Star Wars Holiday Special in 1989 oh called the Super Mario Ice Capades. Yes. Hosted by very young, teenaged Alyssa Milano and Jason Bateman. Oh, God. And what happened... Here's the plot, as far as we can tell, is Bateman is bragging about his skills playing Mario Brothers, Super Mario. He calls himself a video prince. This somehow conjures King Koopa, who is played by Mr. Belvedere, Christopher Hewitt. So British King Koopa in, like, terrible green makeup and a jester's hat comes out and says that there's a there's a virus that's infecting computers all over the world and it's his fault, blah ha ha. And Princess Peach skates out with a giant mascot head and and summons Mario and Luigi to fight the evil. It's as good as it sounds. Wow. And but in spite of this, just like Star Wars, it survives a terrible, terrible holiday special. <laughs> and Still very popular. Yeah, but Star Wars was actually like a good movie. That's a good point. Whereas at this point, they've made Supercade. Yes. And do the Mario. Yes, yes. Super Mario Brothers Super Show. And they are headed straight for the double barrel of the actual movie, which I do remember. Which I'm, yeah, I'm about to get there. Now, do you want to hear some of the backstory on the actual movie? Sure. Um, that, um, as per usual in these stories, uh, Yamamuchi, he wanted the movie. He did not want to pay for it. (laughs) Uh, but it's a huge property. Dustin Hoffman really wants to play Mario. Dustin Hoffman, what are you doing? Yeah. But Nintendo... You worked with Sir Lawrence Olivier and you want to be Mario? And and we haven't even started to talk about how the movie turns out, but oh my god. Um, but Nintendo wants Danny DeVito to do it. Okay. DeVito's kind of trying to move away from comedy and light stuff at this point. So they settle on and hire Tom Hanks. Sorry? <laughs> As Mario? As Mario. Yeah, he's got dark hair. They figure close enough. <laughs> Wait, so the three people they had up for this role were Dustin Hoffman, Danny DeVito, and Tom Hanks? And Tom Hanks wanted $5 million for the job. Yamauchi doesn't want to pay for it. Yeah. They go with Bob Hoskins, who's best known for at this point for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's like, kids will like him. <sighs> wow. Yeah. 
Is Bob Hoskins that British actor who you're always telling me I should watch the scary movie where he's like a killer or something? In Felicia's Journey, he is Mm. absolutely the most terrifying slash sympathetic serial killer. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. No, and he he is just so scary when he reminds you who he is in this film because he's playing a different part for 90% of the movie. Oh, but so 90s kids will therefore know... That Bob Hoskins could have asked Dustin Hoffman on the set of Hook. So exactly. Passed on Mario. Exactly. Huh? That that's the craziest thing. Hook was one of the justifications for Bob for hiring Bob Hoskins instead of Tom Hanks, and, and breaking the contract. So because and this is true too. They didn't think that Tom Hanks was worth it. They didn't think he was bankable. <laughs> Well, good job, guys. Yeah, so no. Th- I like to imagine they were just like, all right, Hanks, we're in. You get 25% of the quarters. Yeah, exactly. You gotta collect them yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they get Bob Hoskins and a very young John Leguizamo to play Luigi. 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie comes out and it is a dark apocalyptic otherworld thing that you know the mushroom kingdom is like literally the the people have been turned into actual mushrooms that's what's happened to the king and king koopa is compressing people's heads down into the into goombas and it's it is just dystopic and terrible I think that movie, it's one of, like, three movies that I saw as a kid that... Oh, you've seen it. I haven't actually seen it. Oh, yeah, no, I saw it because it's for kids. But no, it it haunted my dreams because it had this in common with Rocky Horror Picture Show and Nothing But Trouble, as, or as my friend Aaron calls it, Chevy Chase's Shit Is In Trouble again. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) But where I was just like, this looks like a movie for me, but this isn't a movie for me. I'm I'm scared and it's dirty here. I'm leaving. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it was an incredibly filthy seeming film. It just it seemed like it was dirty everywhere. He eventually jumps, so it was, good. Yes. But... It's one of those movies where you feel like everybody on it got athlete's foot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and it did not understand I mean kids' movies in general, but didn't understand any of the idea of having fun in a movie. And you've got Dennis Hopper be, being just a truly malicious villain. Yeah, I've seen clips. I know enough about it, but holy cow. Dennis Hopper. Yeah. 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 Dennis Hopper, known for Blue Velvet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, seriously. and play, playing the nitrous huffing madman. <laughs> At Apocalypse Now, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> it's and well, just drugs. He was yeah. also known for drugs. Known for drugs, but yeah, no, it, it it didn't do well either. And my understanding is not only is it incredibly dark, just nasty film, it isn't a good movie. It isn't it isn't enjoyable on any level. And it, if it's not entertainment, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, and yet. Mario has still survived. He survives to them casting Charles Martinet in 1996 as the voice of Mario when he when they have been listening to people all day and he just comes in and said, "Hey, it's a me, a Mario," in the worst Italian stereotype he could do. And they're like, 
Yes. <laughs> you, you are the future. God. That's what we've been missing. Yeah, and at that point, you have all of Mario codified, more or less. You've got the voice, the kind of bouncy personality. You've had every misstep you can possibly make with the character. You've had him being a villain both in video games and on in Saturday Supercade. And it does not make a whole lot of sense, but he has come through as a hero, as and as someone who's not overly impressive, so he gets to be an everyman. He's a resilient little guy yeah. it, as a character and a brand. Yeah, and he did start in Washington. So I thought that was really a story worth telling. Yeah. That it is bizarro. <laughs> And um, kind of unbelievable. <laughs> Are they still operating out of Washington at all? I did not check that actually. Um, we, Let's see. we should do that. Yeah, I, I, it would not surprise me. <sighs> I mean, we do have Nintendo a couple of tech America. companies around yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. I've heard about that. Yeah, just Nintendo oh, of America. Yeah, they've got a corporate office in Redmond. Okay, still in Redmond. There you go. Where is the ne- Nintendo of America? It's in Redmond, Washington. Yeah. yeah. Their first location was in New York City, New York. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Wow, still in <laughs> Redmond. Cool. Yeah. I thought the one thing, one other thing I wanted to give credit to, which is Koji Kondo, is the guy who came in for Super Mario Brothers and did the first score. He was like one of the first real video game composers. And it is a truly memorable. And that's what they did through the Mario 2. Yep. Which, yeah, that's that's kind of unforgivable. Yeah. It's painful, guys. That's a good story, baby. Thank you. Thank you I enjoyed me that. I enjoyed telling it. It's yeah, it's kind of stuck in my head. And like I said, uh, Super Mario: How Nintendo Conquered America by Jeff Ryan, really good read, and is where I got a lot of this. There is tons more. Yeah, this yeah. is a hyper abbreviated version. Well, sure. And um, and he he's also a really fun, dynamic writer who just recognizes how absurd so much of this is. <laughs> Washington, we're now batting. We've given you Starbucks, Boeing, Microsoft, and Mario. <laughs> That's not bad for a little out-of-the-way place. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Mario made in America. I like it. Mm-hmm. The many faces of Mario. Yeah. Because it takes forever for him to for them to know who Mario is and what he's doing. <laughs> He had to find himself, I get it. Yeah. Well, I think if he had not become a corporate property, it would have been easier, and they hadn't licensed him to insane animators so many times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, have you listened to the show enough to do the outro with me? <laughs> yes, I have. Okay. So you can find the Ouija broads on what, baby? Well, uh, Podbean. Uh-huh. And uh, iPadiness. Close. <laughs> iTunes. iTunes. Where we want you to live weird. No, rate, review, and subscribe. Oh.
You got I, too excited. I got too I, I know the catchphrase. That was my actual oh. excited part. Now, the catchphrase yes. is what we earn for doing all the spiel. You're right. All right. Rate, so, review, and... Subscribe. Subscribe. On iTunes or Podbean. You can join us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the Ouija Broads. You can also hit us up on our website at OuijaBroads.com, where I just, when I'm recording this today, added the Ouija Broads Guide to Haunted Hotels. So check that out mm-hmm. um and you can also come find us on patreon if you want to give it a dollar it's just patreon.com slash thank you for joining us today for this unusual episode and we would like you to live weird and die weird and stay weird thanks for listening <laughs>